It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. New this season, Behind the Screen presents the full conversations from our annual Hollywood Reporter Animation Roundtable, which was recorded September 26th at the Warwick in Hollywood. This will be followed in one week by our annual Cinematographer Roundtable. Edited versions of both roundtables are additionally available in the Hollywood Reporter in print and online. Our guests for the Animation Roundtable are Jennifer Lee, Dean Debevoir, Jill Colton, Jinko Goto, and Josh Cooley. Jennifer Lee is the writer and one of the directors of Frozen 2, as well as chief creative officer of Walt Disney Animation Studios. Lee and Chris Buck won an Oscar for the original Frozen and reteamed to make the sequel. Dean Debevoir is the writer, director, and executive producer of DreamWorks Animation's How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World. He also wrote and directed all three movies in this moving coming-of-age story, earning Oscar nominations for the previous two films. Jill Colton is the writer and director of DreamWorks Animation's Abominable. During her time at Pixar, she was story artist on the original Toy Story and Toy Story 2. Her credits as a director also include Open Season. Chinko Goto is the producer of Netflix's animated Santa Claus origin story, Klaus, directed by Despicable Me co-creator Sergio Pablos. Her recent credits also include The Little Prince and the Lego movie The Second Part, she additionally serves as vice president of the nonprofit Women in Animation. Josh Cooley made his feature directorial debut with Disney Pixar's Toy Story 4. His Pixar credits also include the Oscar-winning Inside Out, which he co-wrote and served as story supervisor. During this year's roundtable, our guests talked about a range of topics, including casting choices, changing styles of animation, advancing technology, diversity and inclusion, and of course, their latest movies. I'm Carolyn Jardina. Welcome to a special episode of The Hollywood Reporter's Behind the Screen. I'm Carolyn Jardina. Thank you so much for joining us for Hollywood Reporter's Animation Roundtable. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Could we go around and could I ask each of you to introduce yourself I am Dean Deblois, and I am the writer, director, and executive producer of How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World. I'm Jill Colton, and I'm the writer, director of Abominable. I'm Josh Cooley, I'm the director of Toy Story 4. I'm Jennifer Lee, I'm the writer and one of the directors of Frozen 2. And I'm Jinko Goto, producer of Klaus. Welcome. What character do each of you most identify in your stories? Josh, do you want to start? <laughs> Uh, sure. You know, we added this new character uh, into the world of Toy Story named Forky, who's a spork that uh, comes to life. And um, it's the first time that we've ever done that in any of the movies. And uh, I really, it was funny, I was coming up with this, we were brainstorming this idea, and I went home and I pitched it to my wife. And I said, yeah, it's, it's really fun because, you know, he's never seen Toy Story 1 through 3, so he doesn't know any of the rules of the world, and he tries to talk to Bonnie and all this, you know, all this crazy stuff. And I said, but he doesn't understand anything. And she went, oh, that's you. <laughs> Wait, what? She said, no, that's like you. You're trying to figure this out, your first time directing. And, and 
first I was like, no, it's not. How dare you? And then I was like, yeah, I guess so. So I think I, <laughs> I could see Forky as somebody I really uh, understand. And what was it like to get Forky involved with, um, with Woody and the other toys? It was great. It was fun. Anything that felt like it was different from the previous three Toy Stories that you can throw into the mix was just felt fresh and new. And so it was really great to have the characters that we already know and have been established respond to this weird idea that just the same way that the audience is, you know. And so it started off kind of as a joke. It's just like, what would happen if a toy that was made came to life? But then we realized it actually has more to it because he's so innocent and naive that he can just take things at face value and it actually forced Woody to explain what it meant to be a toy, which was really... That's when it like clicked, like, oh, no, there's a, there's a deeper thing here. It's more emotional. It's not just for the comedic value of it. Jinko Klaus is a Santa Claus origin story. What about you? Which character? Well, for me, it's Margu. Margu is a little Sammy girl that shows up, and she doesn't speak a word of English. And I feel like that because when I, I came to the U.S. when I was eight years old, didn't speak a word of English. Oh, I spoke with Japanese. So I really connect with Margu because she ends up in Smearsburg. Same situation, and she befriends Jasper and uh, brings life to this, this village. So, for me, I really, really loved her when um, Sergio originally um, wrote the script. She was like in there for a very little amount, and I said, "You got to bring more Margo into this." <laughs> Dean, well, for me, it's it's always been Hiccup. I think he's a character that even even has he's aged through the three films. Um, has always been somebody who's overcompensating and always trying to assimilate uh, despite his nature. So it's um, just as a character that's always been a little bit on the outside, never excelled at sports, never really fit that well into the the popular crowd, Uh, spend a lot of time kind of drawing and writing on my own and and kind of hiding aspects of myself from being discovered. I I feel like I connect with that character. I think the character I relate to the most in this movie is the main character, Yi. Um, She's a 16-year-old girl who grows up in China. And the thing I really relate to her is that she's more of a tomboy than anything else. And I grew up in Ventura, a little seaside town where I was a surfer and a skateboarder and put on whatever clothes felt comfortable. I never looked in the mirror once when I was growing up. And I kind of love that. Like I never had a, a kind of a, an image of what the perfect kind of girl should be. And so a lot of the movies I grew up on um, growing up was, uh, you know, more, more like princess movies and stuff. So I was really impassioned to, to write a character that was more like myself and to give myself the role model I always wish I had. And what I love about her too is she's very adventurous, but she kind of leaps before she looks and sometimes that gets her into trouble, which was again, a lot like me growing up. So independent, strong-willed, stubborn, um, and definitely not, uh, definitely flawed on a lot of levels. And I can relate to that. (laughs) And Jen? For me, it has always been Anna. I'm definitely an Anna. They always say, are you an Anna or an Elsa? Anna feels everything way too much, um, but in a great way that makes her fully engage, I think, in life. I don't give up on people easily, for better or worse. Neither does Anna, but I think she does everything in a similar way that sort of act before she thinks, uh, which I admire, and, and she's definitely carries the burdens of responsibility, but always without the grace. I think so she's the anchor of both films and she's she's kind of my anchor I guess 
Well, I'd like to talk about the casting for some of these films. Dean, this time you have F. Murray Abraham come on board as your villain Grimmel. Tell us about Grimmel and what drove the casting decision. I think the casting of F. Murray Abraham was very unique um, in my experience in that we were trying to decide what the character was and we were working with a couple of different character designers. Um, so we had some vague notions of what he could be and we're being very experimental with it. But we landed on a design before we really landed on the personality and the function of the character. So it meant that the modelers were able to take uh, a wonderful design and, and not only sculpt it, but also articulate it and put it in the hands of the supervising animator, Ronnie Namani. And while he was playing with the rig and just putting him through the tests, he was also listening to all sorts of voices that inspired him. And he came to us with F. Murray Abraham. In fact, he had animated a test based on a clip from a television show where Murray was playing this distant uncle. And, and it was all the reversals and uh, the well-placed pauses. It had such great entertaining comedic value from the start. And so he convinced us that, that uh, he should be the voice actor for the role, and it actually really helped us when we contacted Murray to say, and look, we did this animated test, what do you think? And he was immediately on board. Not normally done that way, usually we have this whole casting process, but thanks to Ronnie, we, we took the shortcut. Uh, you have Keegan-Michael Key and Jordan Peele as Ducky and Bunny, <laughs> yes, which yeah. were a lot of fun to watch. How did that come about? <laughs> they were a lot of fun to watch in the booth as well. Uh, it came about because we had these, uh, I love the idea of doing carnival toys. It was something that hadn't been done before in any of the other uh, Toy Story films. And the thing that's interesting about carnival toys is that they're, they're um, mass produced on, on a dime. They're very cheaply made usually. And um, I thought carnival toys kind of have the worst existence out of any of the toys because they're basically bait for children to spend money. Right? They're hanging there and just trying to... Uh, get with a kid and the kid wants them, but those games are, are impossible to win. So I was just thinking like the, that gives them an edge already. Like they're kind of, they could be bitter. They can have a viewpoint on the world that's totally different from any other toys. And the idea of these two characters together, my mind, Key and Peele was first choice. I mean, they're, they're amazing, everything they do. And I'm um, so thrilled they said yes. And we would always record them together. We don't usually record people together, but the two of them, it was, I double checked with them. I said, "Is that cool?" And they're like, "Absolutely. We need we need to bounce off each other." And watching them was like watching two people read each other's minds. It was insane. One person would say something, and it was definitely a setup for like three jokes in advance. You know, they they knew where they were going. But the great thing was they always had context for the scene, and they would always bring everything kind of back to the point of the scene and the story point of it. So it wasn't just like, we could say anything. It was, there's a purpose for it. And uh, it was like an embarrassment of riches. Like, what do you not use? You know, what, <laughs> this movie would be four hours long if we used everything. It was, all, it was all so great. Another fan favorite was Keanu Reeves' Duke Kaboom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, we knew we had this, uh, you know, we had Duke Kaboom, we had the character and kind of he would be in this pinball machine, but we didn't know uh, about the voices, and we thought a Canadian actor, and we didn't even, at the time we didn't know that Keanu even has a motorcycle company. We, we didn't put that together uh, until we met with him. But he came up to Pixar uh, just to meet us and say hi and and get a pitch of the story and the character. We were having lunch, and he was like, 
well, he's he's like an action figure, right? And I said, yeah, he, he does these, po- he, can, he can, you know, points of articulation and everything. And he says, he starts doing these poses going, huh, 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 like right there at the table. And it was hilarious and it didn't, it, it didn't expect it at all. And he just kept going to the point where he was like standing up on the table going, <laughs> I'm Duke Kaboom. <laughs> and it was like, he is Duke Kaboom. And Everybody in the atrium is kind of like, is that Keanu Reeves standing up on a table? But uh, he, he uh, totally helped craft that character in that very first meeting. And so I was just going, please say yes to this role because I, now I can't see it any other way. And he was a joy to work with. He had a, we had a lot of fun yelling and screaming throughout the sessions. <laughs> I think he does a pretty good uh, Keanu Reeves uh, yeah. impression. Oh, that's just from the years of listening to his voice constantly. Now, Jill, at one point, E was male. Would you tell us about the progression of that character? Well, as stories develop and change, Yi was actually uh, younger and then a, a male and then a female who was 16. And that's part of the development process, I should say. But um when we ended up casting Chloe as Yi, she has such a magical, Chloe Bennett was our Yi character, and she has a kind of a gruff voice for a female, and it was really a different kind of sound. Um, and I love that about her. Again, it fits that kind of tomboy attitude. And the really interesting thing about her as well is that she not only grew up also kind of a tomboy, she had six brothers, but she grew up She's half Shanghaiese. She grew up in Shanghai with her grandma. And then I got to meet her grandma. And her grandma is exactly like the grandma in our movie. So we say, like, oh, my gosh, she is Nai Nai, but in Chanel. That's, uh, like, her grandma is much more put together. And so she related to this character so much that along the way, one of the collaborative processes, we get to a really emotional, pivotal scene in the movie. And she and I really workshopped together kind of the script. And... What was great was she would say, well, you know, my character knows this character better. Maybe I should use this word instead of that. And she was so in it with me that we really got to a great place. We recorded the sequence quite a few times. And then I just grabbed the script and I said, I threw it away. And I said, just tell the story. You know the story. And she teared up and fumbled with her words. And I was crying. She was crying. The booth was crying. And those are magic moments when, when those things happen because the, the performance is so real. And it's coming from someone who really embodies that character on a deeper level. And so um, it was a joy working with her. And I felt like we couldn't have had a better character. She was the character. Hey, uh, what are you doing out here? Someone's going to see you. Where did you get that? No, 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 no. Get, get back now. Do you hear me? Let go. That does not make sense. Why would they take it to the roof? Oh, Guys, hey. what are you doing up here? Hey, get oh, away from no, her. No, no, no. Wait. Okay, I'm calling the police. He's not dangerous. <laughs> Look at him. He's a Yeti. Yeah, I love that part of that process when the actress just really get into the character and same thing happened with um, Jason Schwartzman and Rashida Jones on Klaus were... Tell us about those yeah. castings. I mean, they were just amazing. I mean, we had a pretty short list and we were very, very fortunate that um, we were able to cast that very short list. And because Jason and Rashida both write, you know, and they got really into the character that Sergio was really spent a lot of time with them. Well, let's talk about each of them. So Rashida plays a school teacher. Yes, yeah, she plays Alba, the school teacher. 
And she's been at Smearsburg for five years, saving all her pennies to get out of Smearsburg. Um, and Which she is came a very cold Very cold, place. yes. Cold and um, a very, uh, what's the best way to describe the city is, is there are two clans that clash. And there is just, the world is just a place where all they do is fight. And she came up to Smearsburg to teach school and realized that there was no school to be taught because these kids don't play together, they fight. So she gets up there and spends basically the next five years selling fish to these two clans so that she can get back out of Smearsburg. And so um, Rashida Jones plays that uh, school teacher. And the animation is extraordinary, but you know she brought life to this character, Ava. Same way that um, Jason Schwartzman did for Jesper. And who is a postman who postman? sent to work. Yes, yes, he's somewhat of a privileged child, came from a, a postmaster's family, and his father sends him out to Smearsburg and says, okay, you know, you're gonna have to get 6,000 letters, otherwise you're not gonna be able to come back. And so he gets up there thinking that this will be an easy task and realizes not. And uh, Jason, again, brings so much life into this character. And so it was a challenge because, you know, uh, we did the film out of Madrid. And so after the first session where Sergio was actually here in town recording with um, both Jason and Rashida, as well as um, J.K. Simmons, who plays Klaus, is that everything was done remotely. So Sergio was in Madrid. We connected to LA Studios and he would be doing this at night, you know, from about 8 p.m. on till midnight over there. And the talent was here. I hate it, directing that way. Yeah, I, I had to do it quite hard. a bit too. I know, but it, London. Yeah, yeah, but you know, given the time difference and just you know, just the logistics, that's how we ended up doing this film. And both Sergio and the talent did just extraordinary work. Just really extraordinary work that I'm really, really proud of. Nine months. It's been nine months since I used every ounce of my influence to get you into the Royal Postal Academy. Actually, nine months and six days, but who's counting? What? No croutons? Oh, man, come on. Shall we take account of your progress, then? Mm-hmm, 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 definitely. Sergeant? Yes, sir. Sorting and filing. Total failure. Carrier pigeon care and handling. Abysmal performance. Transport of fragile merchandise? Worst on record. We're super excited. I think everyone here is excited to see Klaus just because it's a 2D film and we all grew up that way. One, you know, I, I, I was an animator. I think you were an animator mm -hmm. too. Were you yeah. an animator? I ever? studied 2D. Studied 2D. Yeah. Writer, direct, writer, writer, direct, writer. She's always been a writer. writer. <laughs> so, but it's such a joy that somebody took the responsibility, that your, your team took that and just decided to go for it. Because there's, I know there's like a handful of people that can still do it really well, but you have, you brought new techniques and everything to it. So I'm super excited to see yeah, it was how a, it turned it out. Was, it was a real challenge because when Sergio said, let's go sell this movie, I said, we could be really careful. I said, we can't say the word traditional animation. Said, oh, no, that's no. interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so Why is that? Because I think, you know, unfortunately, 2D films hadn't been doing so well over the last 10 years. So I said, if we're not careful, the minute people find out it's a traditional animated film, they're going to get scared. But we had this little test that we had done, and it doesn't look like this 2D animation because of the way we light it and texture. 
And so when we went out with the task, people go, how did you guys do this in CG? And then I said, this is when we say, no, this is Trish. <laughs> you know, and so. It, it's so interesting that I think, so I hear such the opposite now in a good way mm -hmm. to encourage is people ask again and again, will you, will you, can you, please, please. And, and there's no aversion to hand-drawn. Obviously, their technique now, you're, you're using computer skills to do hand-drawn mm -hmm. style as opposed to 300 painters in a room. And, but at the same time, I think when there was one style of hand-drawn and that was dominant, that's you, you get tired. But right. the artistry out there is incredible. And we're doing a lot of exploration, particularly in short form, to learn how to combine technologies yeah. for the same and reason, because the artistry of it is so incredible. Right. Um, I think there is a hunger maybe not for the story to be exactly what it was 20 years ago when people right. were fading away from it, more just to reinvent it for what is it now. Um, we hear it every day, so that's exciting to me. One of the few jobs that I miss doing, like it, just being in your office all day drawing like that, it really challenges your skill set. And you used to be able to kind of pull the drawing out of the pack and look at it and go, I did that, oh my gosh, you know. And then, of course, like, as you direct, you draw less and less, which is so tough to see your skills kind of get sloppy. But mm -hmm. Yeah, we're super excited because we're saying we're bringing 2D forward because, because there's, you know, there's animators that are just extraordinary talent that you can't see that character come to life in CG like you can in these hand-drawn animations, so... Jamal, you were working on Frozen 2. You were promoted to also have the role of Chief Creative Officer. Uh, would you talk about what it's been like to step into that new role? You know, it was quite, it was quite an adventure to jump into the role of CCO, mainly because we were um, in production on Record Ralph and on Frozen 2. So in my role on Frozen 2, I think we all felt the way we work, we're filmmaker-driven, and Frozen 2, Chris Buck and I had done the first one. I, there wasn't sort of this idea that I would step out of that, because that's who we are, is the, the filmmakers make these films. So it was a bit of a challenge, but the best part for me was I work with an incredible team of directors and a studio that stays together, which is unique to some of us for animation. We stay together film to film. There's 800 plus of us and some of the best in the business that know how to do the film. So we just really hunkered down for the work while I was sort of looking ahead uh, to where we would go as a studio and connecting with all the departments to really see where do we want to go. So it was probably the busiest year plus of my life. Uh, with Frozen 2 wrapped, I am having more and more fun, I think, helping on the next film, looking ahead. We're developing a lot of new talent, so getting to meet with them, see their short films, see their new styles. And so I'm in the new honeymoon phase, which is where I actually get to do that job, um, mostly. <laughs> We didn't get to talk to about one of your characters, but Elsa's become an icon in the LGBTQ community. How do you feel about that response and responsibility? Yeah, I think what I love so much about Elsa, she's her own woman and people see uh, wonderful things in her they project onto her. I love that she, she doesn't have a romantic uh, interest in this next film as she didn't in the first. Where will she go in the future? I can't wait to see. She's defining herself. And uh, this one really focuses on her powers. But I think I love that she's a character that is wholly unique to a queen princess we've done before, but also uh, driving us forward. So, so I'm sort of following the ride of her on each film. This one, we had a crazy blast focusing on what her powers <laughs> meant. Um, so, but for us, it's, that, it's the richness of that character has uh, meant a lot to us. So.
Well, from casting to your filmmaking teams to leadership roles, all of you, are you seeing more diversity and inclusion in animation? Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, Jinko's been leading the charge, so it's, no, it's great. I, the gender parity by, what's the year? 20? 2025. 2025. I've noticed um, in doing talks at schools that the, the balance within the classrooms has changed dramatically from certainly the days that I was in animation. Uh, we had a, maybe a few, a few young women and a lot of young men in populating our classrooms, but it's, uh, it, is, it must be at least 75%, if not more, female now. Yeah. And, um, and a great number of, uh, of Asian students as well, you know, so, which is really interesting. Like, that may just be visiting Sheridan College, which is my alma mater, but, um, but I noticed it at NYU as well. Um, so I think, it's, I think it's great. We have diversity internationally as well as, you know, in terms of gender representation. And you were saying, Klaus? Yeah, we're pretty much close to 50-50, gender parity on Klaus, and it, it happened by accident. So, which is really, I'm very proud about it, is that, you know, we didn't force it. It became that way. And um, we are about 260 people on the crew. We represent 22 countries and 15 languages. Wow. So wow. It's, That's awesome. That's great. It's pretty international. And I'm so proud because I think, you know, I've always wanted um, animation to be, become more global and international. And Klaus does really represent that. And the world is changing, like, you know, being saying, you know, there are a lot more Asian students studying animation and definitely, definitely more girls all around the world study animation. And I think one of the things that's interesting is um, what we found is, particularly when I came in, um, in, in the rooms, they were becoming more and more diverse, the rooms were. But creative leadership was not yet. And, and a lot of it was, things take years and, and you kind of looked, maybe that's why, maybe that's why. But I think what we all started really talking about, the sort of talent is universal and the effect it has to have a creative leader. Uh, if you are someone in the room and you're a woman in the room and or you're diverse in the room and you see someone who represents, who's like you, you speak more, you contribute more. And looking at the talent pool to say, the talent is there, the ability and the skills are there, but often we're thinking there's one way. So for us, what's been a big thing is to look at the leadership roles being more diverse in terms of skills, in terms of gender, in terms of international diversity and people of color, and because our films are stronger, our rooms are balanced, that we, we get stronger storytellers, but also with that leadership, it encourages others. And so that, that's been a huge effort for us. And what we found is, we say it's access is often the problem as opposed to the talent being there. And just shifting the way we look at that um, from old traditional models to some new ways um, has not affected quality in a bad way. It has affected it in a fantastic way. So it's kind of what we've been doing. I mean, we've all been in it together for a while. But it's, it's you see it and you go, ah, yes, you know, it, we all want this. So... I'm going to talk a bit about the making of some of these. In the case of Frozen 2 and Toy Story 4, both of these films were in the works when John Lasseter parted ways with the studio. How did each of you navigate your stories in production during those periods? Well, on Toy Story 4, I mean, the, the great thing about Pixar is a lot of the original group is still there. And so I had mentors across the board. In fact, I, I was thinking about the other day, I got to work with all the original creators, including Joe Ramps and Pete and Andrew and Lee and, you know, include Jeff Pigeon in that as well. And so everybody that's still there 
were the original kind of creators of the of Toy Story. So it was great to be able to go to them and go, when you guys were working on this, I, you know, this kind of idea, like what, what were you thinking at that time? And so I really had uh, the, kind of the history at my fingers and also not even just the those guys, but also like the production designer, for example, is the same production designer. And, and so everybody at Pixar really embraced the film because it was, I mean, you know, Pixar was created on, on kind of the shoulders of Toy Story. So it was really important. So there was a lot of support um, all around. Carry me. No. Why do I have to be a toy? Because you have Bonnie's name written on the bottom of your sticks. Why do I have Bonnie's name written on the bottom of my sticks? Because she... Look, she plays with you all the time, right? Uh, yes. And who does she sleep with every night? The big, white, fluffy thing? No, not her pillow. You. Uh. All right, Forky, you have to understand how lucky you are right now. You're Bonnie's toy. You are going to help create happy memories that will last for the rest of her life. Huh? What? Oh, yeah. Dan, I think in a very similar way, um, our... We had this wonderful um, moment where we realized our entire crew from Frozen was back. And sometimes they go into different films and, and your schedule doesn't work out to get the same crew. We had the same crew. And the way we built the first one, in the room every day, Bobby and Kristen on the video conference for, as, with the songs, uh, other directors coming in to give notes, it's the same people. So for us it was like, we've done this, we know how, how to do this, we can't guarantee. It's not gonna be really hard, but um, they're all hard. But we've, we're in this together as we have always been. So we really just went back to what we know and, and um, relied on each of us for what we've done before with this together. So uh, that's it. You just kind of go back to work, focus, focus. Other changes that took place in the animation landscape this year um, included John Lasseter joining Skydance Animation. Um, Jinko, for you, you're the vice president of Women in Animation, a nonprofit society, um, which spoke out against that decision. Would you elaborate on WIA's stance? Well, we didn't speak against it, is that I think, you know, we want to be cognizant and make sure that we have a supportive, healthy companies and safe places for people to work. You know, we care about um, making sure that people have a safe place to work. So I think we were concerned, but again, you know, we want to support all the women and the men at Skydance. I mean, that was a business decision that Skydance made, and we reached out and wanted to make sure that we could support the people there. And for you, when you were making Klaus, this is Netflix's first original animated feature. What was it like to make this film under the very new umbrella? It was very, very exciting for us because when we went out to sell the film in 2016, uh, Melissa and Greg's team were not in place. So we actually sold it to executive and, and original features. And, um, and the executive looked at us and said, you know, you guys are the experts, just go make this movie. So for us, it was just like, wow, this is amazing. You know, Sergio had a small studio in Madrid at the time, and we literally had to build a studio to make this movie. And um, it was a big gamble for Sergio. Uh, and we said, let's go do it. So it, it's been a bit of a Wild Wild West kind of um, situation. But I mean, Netflix is so, so supportive of, of the, the creative process. And they have just been a tremendous support in getting this movie done. On a sad note, I, I did want to also ask you, earlier this year, the animation world suffered a tragedy in Japan. Uh, would you reflect on how the community is responding and recovering? 
It's, it's so hard for me because I'm Japanese. And um, when the tragedy happened, I reached out to my friends in Kyoto and my friends in, in Tokyo. And surprisingly enough, a lot of them didn't know. And so, um, you know, the Japanese are, they always take a step or a moment before they go out. And I think this was a situation where we in industry here in Hollywood knew sooner than they actually knew what was happening. So um, it's hard for me because, um, of course. because being Japanese and one of the things I've also wanted to do um, before I retire is really try and support that um, industry in Japan because the Japanese animation industry, especially the anime industry, is a it's not a it's a very poor industry. You know, I mean, it's a big industry, but um, the labor laws, the the pay scale, I mean, it's not a, it's not a very good place. And I'm hoping that this incident will actually change and and, and make things better. Um, there's been tremendous support from everywhere around the world, and um, I remember I think within the first 24 hours. 30 hours, I mean, over a million dollars got raised. So um, I think there's a lot of support. And hopefully, you know, we'll see the industry change in Japan. Thank you for sharing your perspective on that. Moving on, uh, The Hidden World and Abominable were going forward when Comcast acquired DreamWorks Animation and Jeffrey Katzenberg was moving on. Would you talk again about how you navigated your projects during the change at the studio? For me, uh, it's it's an interesting project because the leadership changed five times during the making of the movie. <laughs> and with every new leadership change comes a new sensibility that you need to incorporate. And, you know, you find yourself making changes and and sometimes for the better, sometimes you, know, you have your arguments. But uh, overall, when Comcast came into the mix and they appointed Universal as our, our point people, namely Donna Langley up, up top, I found myself to be uh, nervous going in and very reassured coming out of her office because she grew up with the movie Born Free and for me that was one of the tonal targets uh, for, for um, How to Train Your Dragon in the Hidden World. So I, I felt as though um, she was a support from the start. And so we, uh, once we set our minds on the movie we were making, we just kind of relied upon one another on the day-to-day -day making of the movie. I really trust my creative team and everybody kind of reigns dominion over their individual departments and they trust me with a lot of the storytelling. So I, I felt like everyone's very honest and, and we try to keep ourselves to task of not repeating ourselves and trying to deliver something that is daring and filled with wonder and we, we have that aspiration, so we didn't really have to look too far beyond ourselves for that guidance. We just had our own mission, and the, the studio and the changes of leadership, they all allowed us to continue down that path. Demons everywhere! It's the end of the world! <laughs> Astrid! I had him right where I wanted him. And now he's right where I wanted him. Let's get to work. Okay, we screwed that up, but at least nobody else knows we're here. Easy, girl. It's okay. Shh. We're gonna get you out of here. <gasps> the Crimson Gore Gutter! <laughs> <laughs>
And for me, I, I had a little bit of a similar situation that um, Dean did as well. Just every time there's a new leadership, I think they have a certain idea about what the film could be. And so you try to incorporate those ideas in. I also had the a little bit of a different situation where my film, Abominable, is a co-production with Pearl Studios in China. So um, we had that voice and then the kind of changing voices coming through uh, NBC Universal. But I have to say, no one, I, I felt very encouraged and very supported when Universal came in. They didn't want to knock the pins completely down, which they could have. Um, they were, they loved the story that we were already telling, and so they got on board with it. And I have to say, Margie Cohen and Kristen Lowe have been incredibly um, just smart women to work with. Um, Kristen has worked with Donna for so many years as her kind of second in command, and she had come to all of our screenings previously. So um, I felt really great with her taking over as the head of feature. Um, yeah, she's really smart. She is so smart. I mean, she 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 would give me notes that I would literally think in my head, duh, like why did I not think of that? And that's the kind of people you want in charge, right? And the other thing that I felt like Universal brought to the studio is, and I'm just experiencing it now, but um, their marketing team and CP team and the team that is promoting these films is huge. It's big guns and I'm, I'm humbled at how well they've been just promoting this movie. I mean, they're a giant studio and they've kind of opened their resources up to us too. We got to use their mix stages for our mix and it's, it's, it's been kind of a, a great resource to, to have. I feel like the studio, they really embraced the studio and brought it together as you know, kind of DreamWorks and Universal as one. Question for all of you. With the release of John Favreau's Lion King, there's been a lot of discussion about what defines an animated feature. What do you think? Do you consider Lion King an animated movie? Jen, you're shaking your head no. Go no, ahead. I, I think it's about intent. I mean, we don't create animation to, to make realistic worlds. We, we want believable worlds, worlds that they transport you. There's always a style to what we do that takes you beyond the realism of our lives. And, and, and the goal of Lion King, I mean, it's from an animated film, and there's no question of the difference. And you could say, oh, hand-drawn versus not. I mean, you look at all of ours that have done CG. There's no doubt it's animated. I think it's the intent is wanting to, you know, enjoy creating a sense of realism out of, you know, real animals and emoting them in a way that is, again, go towards realism. But, you know, I'm madly in love with animation and there's no expression like the animated expression and it's hard to do. And um, live action's its, its own. And so for me, it's about intent. And every single thing in our world is created from nothing. It's all imagination coming to life and that's what makes animation animation. I just, I just, you know, I don't think they cross at all. But it's, I think it's easy for us maybe to think that. But I hand yeah. it to other people. It just seems so easy to me. But it's because we're saturated in it. Maybe I don't know. I kind of agree. I, think, I mean, if you look at even something like Endgame, like how much right. CG is in that? You know, it's it's a ton. So is that animated? I don't, I don't consider it. It's just, it's it's interesting though, seeing how uh, over the years that animation and live action are getting closer and closer. And then now it's it's completely crossed over with Lion King and, and Jungle Book and all those films. So I don't think we should have to categorize it, but I it's but I think you're right. I think it's the intent of it, and he's that uh, was obviously going for this is real, and everything's looking real and moving realistically. There's the that it used to be like those are visual effects films. Like right. We're doing animation, but now then I've heard definitions being like, well, if a character is being 
animated within it than it could be an animated film. But then look at all the Harry Potters. And, and look, look at, at Gravity. Yeah, Most yeah, of that exactly. Movie was right? animated then. So it, yeah, I think the lines are very blurry right now for that. But I think those of us who have been steeped in kind of traditional animation and CG animation see the distinction. Well, you can see the limitation in the the very overt decision to pursue realism and naturalism inhibits their ability to lend caricature to the characters, which is for animation, that's the great power of animation is that you can, you can caricature emotion, you can caricature, caricature expression and movement in ways that makes it more real than some of their live action counterparts. And so I think if you lean too heavily into, the, into realism, you find yourself bound by those constraints. You know, the mouth doesn't open that way. The eyes don't express in that way. And so there's a sense of, um, yeah, restriction and limitation. And it feels a bit stifled. You know, I, I hold sort of another opinion about the whole remake fascination because I, th I think studios with that, that reach and that power and that um, kind of funding, it feels like a missed opportunity to go back and kind of just remake keep remaking. I try to be flattered. That's what I keep saying. <laughs> uh, they love the story so much. <laughs> That's how, right. I mean, I'm in the same company that does it a lot. So, but I think, <laughs> uh, but I think I made peace with it that way. In a way, it's, it's the, the strength of the storytelling, um, the inspiration of animation that people love the stories and want to see it told in a different way. But the clarity is it's a different way. And the things we do, I mean, as much as we don't do hand-drawn in the exact old sense. Everything we do, our hand-drawn animators are with us the whole time. The way we do expressions, the stylization of every prop, the artistry of animation is still a part of everything we do. And that, so that's what when we're in it, it's like there's no, they have completely different goals in my opinion. Uh, you, Dean, you, you might be embarking on live action next because the roles of visual effects and animation are, like we said, blurring the lines right now. Is that going to help you? I hope so. Yeah, I hope I hope the training that I have in in working with so many talented artists and creating something out of nothing can come into play. Uh, but first and foremost, I'm, I'm sort of driven by story and always trying to you know wrestle wrestle that beast, and that doesn't really change regardless of the medium. So I th I think that's the first and foremost. If I can help craft a story that inspires me, that inspires the people associated with it to bring it into being, then yeah, I'll lend whatever other experience I might have to the, the many talented people who will know much more than I do. Well, I, I think good and bad about technology is that you, know, you can push technology to replace realism to a certain extent. But I think the bad part of it is that, I mean, you've got live action. You, you can do this in real life. Why do you have to push technology to replace that? Because these animals, if you shot them real, I mean, you would get, you, you could emote emotion. But to try and make that photo real animal, it's very, very challenging, very difficult. You're never going to be able to recreate what's in real life. So for me, it's like the, the difference between animation and live action is like, as Dean has said, everyone has said, is that we're making characters from no nothing, you know, where we have these characters that emote, emote expressions and and feelings and, and, and something that we don't see on a day to day. So I struggled when, you know, when people want to make films that are so photoreal. Just go shoot it. It's, you're going to do it much better. As Jen said, she just said the word artistry. And I, I think for me, that's where it, it, the difference is, is we, we get to be 
artist and create a style for our whole film that the characters live in, that the background lives in, and it's it's like a painting. It's like being able to make up a world and have a certain style and have everything fit in there. And that's kind of the fun of, of animation. It's There's endless styles to explore. There's endless worlds to explore. And we're trying specifically not to just be photorealistic. And I think that that's where you get to color around outside the lines. And that's the, <laughs> that's the fun part. I actually think that's where it's going to go even further because, you know, you get so close to realism. And then where do you go? You know, more real and just more real. And, and uh, I think, you know, Spider-Verse is a great example of a story that used so many different techniques just to have a different look and, and to tell a great story. And I think that's the... I'm actually really excited about that because that means you can play even more in that world of, of imagination and make-believe. Well, and like when you're looking, we have a director now who's working on a watercolor style but also has a dimensionality to it, and you get to do that, and we, we surrender to it. So it's using all the technology and all the technique, but it's creating something so beautiful and so not real, <laughs> real life, but you are completely transported anyway. And I think that's the stuff where you go, oh yeah, they'll never be the same. Right, because it's, what's great about animation medium is that it is really the marriage of art and science or art and technology, right? To be able to create these magical worlds and characters that you can't imagine any other way. So going photoreal really isn't animation, it's just counterintuitive. You're starting to answer my next question. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, no, that's good. She's looking at the card. <laughs> no, <laughs> no you, you both did. Um, so I wanted to ask you, what emerging talent that you've met has inspired you, or do you see breaking new ground in animation? We both, I know Pixar and Disney have a similar programs. They're not called the same thing. Ours is called Short Circuit. We have the Spark Sparks. Anyone in the building, you can be in technology, you can be in story, can create these sort of two-minute shorts, and they're very free. We give you all the resources and the exploration in there. of, And it's from anything. It'll be hand-drawn style to CG to uh, and cohesive narratives to very daring, explosive visual experiments. And being able to do that, starting to see where where are people going. Uh, and there's just a lot of this beautiful mix match of pushing the narratives in different ways. The short form, younger generations are more used to it too, real short form. And so we're learning a lot from that. But it's it's opened up a lot for us. Of um, that We'll pair them with technologists so they can create something we didn't have existing before. Christoph, can I borrow your wagon? And Sven? Mm -hmm. I'm not very comfortable with the idea of that. You are not going alone. Anna? No, I have my powers to protect me. You don't. Excuse me, I climbed the North Mountain, survived a frozen heart, and saved you from my ex-boyfriend, and I did it all without powers. So, you know, I'm coming. Me too. I'll drive. I'll bring the snacks! I will look after your people. Please make sure they stay out of the kingdom until we return. Of course. Let's let them know. Anna, I am worried for her. We have always feared Elsa's powers were too much for this world. Now we must pray they are enough. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting seeing, uh, giving people just the freedom to do whatever they want. And then you know, some people just do 2D animated films or whatever they need to do to tell their story, which is really exciting. DreamWorks did have a shorts program for a while also that was allowing people to do 2D or whatever kind of style they kind of wanted to. They haven't spark that back up again but it's funny some of these technologies and using short form to explore new technologies has been 
around for a long time. Even when I was at Pixar for a decade, we used to do things like, okay, we need to practice with humans and cloth. So Jerry's game was that short that explored that before it went into the feature format. <laughs> and so I think it's such a great tool to explore what works before you actually apply it in a giant way to a feature. So it's, it's a win-win when studios keep that up. And I think what's really changed the playing field is that there's so much technology today. There's so many tools, right? 20 years ago, 10 years ago, I mean, you needed a whole studio tech department to write code. But today, you know, you can get it off the shelf. You can get it for free, you know. And so you're seeing artists that are so multifaceted that they, they can work with so many tools. I mean, um, I'm working with one artist right now that can actually build physically by hand, but at the same time can do it in the computer that can also draw. So it's really, really exciting times to see that, that they can bring their talent into storytelling from so many different ways because there's just so much accessibility to tools. There's also, I find that like Moonray, we both got to use that, Dean and I did, that there's a proprietary software at DreamWorks that they developed to do renders that really give you way more detail for less weight, quote unquote, in the computer. And it's amazing what that technology did for just detail and like a lush look. My film has a lot of nature in it and a big furry character <laughs> that um, would not look that way had we not kept developing software in-house. So it's new styles that are emerging, but it's also kind of building on the software that you already have to keep it robust, to keep it for, you know, moving for, mm -hmm. forward. Yeah, it was a big, big upgrade to our back, the back end of our system because it was a bottleneck. We had been working on tools up front that gave the artists a really intuitive and expansive and fast way of working, but I think our aspirations and ambitions were limited by what we could actually produce. So this opened up the back end and gave us really amazing results and really fast. I think you both bring up something though that is, I think our next challenge, in particularly as we get into sort of um, direct to consumer and things like that is price points because animation is, is decadently beautifully expensive as well because rendering, I mean, to render the last sequence we rendered in Frozen, I can't even tell you the hundreds of computers it took just to do three seconds of <laughs> some of the layers of what it took to render the complexity of the shots and, um, and technology, developing technology, how hard it is, how skilled people have to be. So there's sort of the technology that allows you to get started and then there's that when you're really trying to push the boundaries and then this want for content and looking at how we balance um, the more efficient you can be in technology, but without limits, that's ideal, but that's so hard. How do you get that? How do you get that? Exactly. <laughs> so really looking, um, I think the short form helps us test, like you said, but it's still the one thing we talk about a lot and, you know, live action delves into it when it gets into CG. But for us is saying like everything we do is built from nothing and that just the rendering alone. <laughs> I, we have to borrow computers from around the world practically um, sometimes. So it's a ch that's a big challenge, I think. But what's exciting is that with the, you know, with the multi-platform, right, there's going to be ability for so much content to be produced. And you've got these kids that are really multifaceted that would, I think, with gaming engines that can do real-time rendering. I mean, I've seen some amazing stuff. I mean, I think the content is not there yet. But the technology is there uh -huh. that if you get the right artist behind it, the filmmaker behind it, they can really exploit that technology. And they'll take it to a place where they're going to be doing these, you know, long-form 
shows at a fractional cost of these big studio films. And I think with the right type of storytelling, I think the platforms will take, you know, risk to be able to go, okay, we can do a film for X million dollars versus, you know, these very, very expensive big temple studio films. So I think it's pretty exciting. There's kind of room for everyone now, which is kind of an exciting wild west frontier so the, there are you know places for the frozens and the dragons threes or they have these rich beautiful looks but as you said we still have to keep working on the technology and then the streaming platforms are just opening up for all different kinds of different storytelling i mean jenny nelson's doing an r-rated you know awesome. thing right now and it's opening up for diversity on so many levels different kinds of storytelling, different kind of filmmakers, different kinds of styles. And I so think we underestimate the audience for animation. We make the assumption that it's kids. And what we all know with streaming is the biggest thing watched is animation. It's animation, the most watched, the highest percentage as a group. So we know, and the idea that, you know, there's more opportunity to really explore in that, but that the for animation, what an exciting time. I, know. I think for a while, especially with these big temple films, we got kind of pigeonholed to be a genre rather than a medium. But now I think because of the fact that we have these platforms, we can truly become a medium where we can tell different types of stories and not be pigeonholed to just family mm -hmm. entertainment. And what's really interesting is that that moment has intersected with what feels like the, the ability within animation technologically to produce anything you can imagine. Like there are no longer limitations like, oh, that's a, nice, that's a nice dream, but let's be practical. We have to do this instead. It's actually reached that point. If you can dream it up and describe it to a team of artists, you can actually produce it now, which is it's a funny, really very, interesting spot to be in. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt, but the very beginning of um, Toy Story 4, I knew the antique store was a location one to do because uh, we've never been there uh, in any other films. And also there's always older toys. I wanted to explore kind of toys of all different ages and everything. And uh, they go, we're not sure if we can make an antique store. Like, because there's 10,000 items inside the store that had to be shaded and lit and rendered and everything. And uh, so we did some summer tests early on. And we were like, OK, we're actually able to do it. But it, I was like, really? We can't do it? <laughs> it's not like we're doing a magical world of you know clouds and rainbows. But it was like you know, shelves. But it, it, the thing was glass. You know, there's all, all these glass shelves. and mirrors and just reflections and with our new renderer all the the light from outside the store and it comes in and bounces off the items back into the camera so it's like all the real world physics are uh, you have to take all that into you know consideration so I don't know how they did it they're like oh yeah we can do it now I'm like, well, great thank you <laughs> thanks for letting me freak out for a month <laughs> well we do have to wrap up uh, thank you all so much for participating in our roundtable today we appreciate it thank you for, thank having, you. Thank you for having us Ryan here and I have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer a hand clapper a high fiver I kind of like the high five but if you want to hone in on those winning moves check out Chumba Casino at ChumbaCasino.com choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes there are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses so don't wait start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com no purchase necessary VGW group void prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus